when his vehicle started to move, I took the first position on the vehicle. And it was pretty much assumption that we were going to get in a shooting with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had already killed two people. He had shot several. He was wanted for these robberies. So we just assumed that uh, that was going to happen. So I came upon the vehicle. I cut the vehicle off. And SWAT came in behind him. And they came out of the SWAT vehicle and approached uh, Vagoa's vehicle. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 56 of the Assyrian Podcast. This is Ninorta coming to you from Arizona. Ever since I was a kid, I remember seeing a cop car near a neighbor's house and I would sneak out and see what happened, who got arrested, and so on. I've always been intrigued and curious about law enforcement and wondered what it would be like to walk in their shoes. And when I met John Alumsha, he had so many cool stories and I'm so thankful that he agreed to sit down with me so that we can bring these stories to you all. John is a retired lieutenant of the Las Vegas Police Department and a retired private investigator. In this episode, John tells us about his career in law enforcement and how it led him to be the hero in a nonfiction book that became a national bestseller. The book is called Storming Las Vegas, How a Cuban-Born, Soviet-Trained Commando Took Down the Strip to the Tune of Five World-Class Hotels, Three Armored Cars, and Millions of Dollars. The case involves Jose Vigoa, who had launched the most ruthless series of high-profile casino and armored robberies in Las Vegas back in 1988. You'll have to continue listening to figure out how it all played out. And this is one of the things that I love about the Assyrian podcast, because we would have never known that we have an Assyrian lieutenant in the police force that has a book written about him bringing down a ruthless criminal. That's so cool. Lastly, support for this podcast comes from Tony Kalagarakos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalagarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication, and he's obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or at 847-982-9516. And now, here is John Alamsha. You decided to join the police academy. Did you always want to be a cop when you were growing up? Yeah, I, I think I did. I always leaned that way. I used to watch the uh, TV show called the FBI, and then mm-hmm. later on there was a police show called uh, Adam 12. Mm-hmm. And I used to watch these shows, and I always leaned towards that way. And so when I graduated high school, I was thinking of going into the military, and my parents didn't really want me to. And uh, I spoke to a recruiter, and I was going to enlist in the Air Force. And my parents uh, basically pleaded with me to at least try college for one year. Mm-hmm. And I went to Bradley University in Peoria, majored in police science, and uh, didn't want to leave college. I mean, I had a good time. I'm glad I went, and it turned out to be a, a benefit for me. So was your family on board with you uh, becoming a cop? Yeah, I think so. Um, it seemed like a lot of the friends that I hung on, hung with in Chicago um, either became cops or criminals, I guess. Yeah, one um, or the other. One or the other, at least at the time. 
and uh, they were on board. I think uh, they were proud of the profession, and they were proud that I got a degree in it. So I, as soon as I graduated from Bradley University, I started testing for police departments, mm -hmm. and I wanted to test for Morton Grove because my family had history there, had roots there since mm -hmm. the 20s. And uh, I tested, did well, and was hired in Mort, uh, by Mort Grove Police Department in 1978. Tell us how your high school life was like at Sen, because a lot of my Chicago listeners could probably relate. <laughs> well, at the time, Sen was a, a pretty tough place to be at. Um, the school had a policy where they had, uh, a re it was called a receiving school. And... Um, they would um, actually bus African-Americans to Sen from the south side of Chicago. Unfortunately, during my time, my freshman and my senior year, there were major riots at the school. Wow. Uh, we're talking serious riots where you would have over 30 or 40 police cars at Sen High School surrounding the school to make sure there wasn't any trouble. But I remember the initial fights that started because of it and um, how people grouped together to defend themselves and it was an unfortunate time but it did happen and um, you know it's, it's part of life experiences mm -hmm. and while I was at Sen I did join a club it was called Sigma Phi Delta mm -hmm. and um, it was more of a social club so I, I enjoyed that had many friends there but uh, when I left for Bradley University in Peoria I put most of that behind myself. Mm -hmm. When did you join the police force? I joined Morton Grove Police Department in 1978. I went through the Chicago Police Academy and um, then went on the actual department as a uniformed officer. Mm -hmm. uh, after about three years, I decided I wanted to move away from Chicago. And so I put applications in with uh, the L.A. County Sheriff's Office and the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, Las Vegas uh, called me and said they were having a testing process and I flew out to Las Vegas. I tested, I scored really high in the testing process and was uh, hired six months later in wow. November of 1981. Wow. Why did you want to leave Chicago? I just, uh, I guess it was the weather. Um, <laughs> yeah. Weather. Well, I think the weather is the main thing. <laughs> but I, I wanted to see some different places. I wanted, uh, I would say, probably more action within uh, policing. Okay. I didn't want to get on the Chicago Police Department per se. At the time, there were a lot of issues with that department, and I didn't mm. want to be a part of it. But yet, I wanted a large police department, and Vegas was growing at the time, so I knew I could grow within the police department, and the cost of living was much better in Las Vegas than it was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier that you were one of the first... Assyrians in the Morton Grove Police Department and also in the uh, Las Vegas Police Department. I believe I was the first Assyrian in Morton Grove and the first Assyrian in Las Vegas as being a police officer. Very nice. And then you went on to the SWAT team. Yes, I had various assignments, uh, both actually as a patrolman, a sergeant, lieutenant. Mm -hmm. But uh, I worked street narcotics as a patrolman. I was also in SWAT mm -hmm. for a few years, and then I was also a training officer, training young officers. Uh, I was promoted to sergeant while I was in SWAT and uh, went back to patrol, and I worked gangs as a sergeant, 
and uh, was involved in a shooting in an ambush in May of 1990, mm -hmm. I believe it was, and survived that. And because I survived that, I have Archangel Michael tattooed on my shoulder mm -hmm. because wow. most of the people were at that scene that they shouldn't uh, didn't think I should have survived that particular incident. Wow. From there, I was asked to go to narcotics um, to test for narcotics. I tested for narcotics as the sergeant came out. Number one had a squad. There were four squads of narcotics. I had a task force squad, and I worked uh, with DEA, FBI, and uh, Nevada Department of uh, Investigations, and we did what they call large dope. We would buy uh, larger quantities, not street quantities. The FBI uh, was able to supply large amounts of money for purchases and we were able to do Title III wires. Wow, that's really interesting. And then uh, I was promoted out of narcotics as a lieutenant, went back to patrol as a, a watch commander and a patrol lieutenant. From there I was asked to go back to narcotics as the section lieutenant in charge of the four squads and I was there for a few years and then I was asked by the undersheriff to take over the Internal Affairs Bureau. So I became the Internal Affairs Bureau commander for Las Vegas. Had several instances there where uh, we had some officers get in trouble, two of them for committing a drive-by shooting mm -hmm. on some gangsters while they were off duty, and some sexual assault issues. So it was, a, it was an interesting time to be a lieutenant in Las Vegas with the Internal Affairs Bureau. And from there, I became the a robbery lieutenant, and I was a robbery lieutenant for three and a half years, and I had uh, several squads of robbery detectives working for me, as well as all the general assignment detectives that worked three shifts, and they were first responders to all major instances. Mm -hmm. And I also had a squad called General Investigations that did with uh, uh, more or less misdemeanor crimes. Mm -hmm. So it was a busy time for me to do that as well. Wow, narcotics, robberies, you've shootings, you've you've seen it all, right? I've seen plenty, that's for sure. <laughs> <You've seen plenty. laughs> Probably more than I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. There's a book that John Huddy wrote, which is called Storming Las Vegas, How a Cuban-Born Soviet-Trained Commando Took Down the Strip to the Tune of Five World-Class Hotels, Three Armored Cars, and a Millions of Dollars. Yeah, that was the whole title. A pretty mouthful, but the title pretty much says it all of, of what happened in the book. So the book, and this, the book is a true story. So you were a the lieutenant in charge of the robberies at the time, and Jose Vigoa was a pretty much conducting a series of ruthless robberies throughout Las Vegas, hitting up the biggest hotels, casinos, MGM Grand, Bellagio, you name it. So it took about 16 months to to catch this guy. And you were in charge of pretty much bringing, bringing him down. When I read the book, I kind of like thought of the movie Ocean's Eleven and, and how those, those crimes happen where you couldn't catch the robbers. They would just fly by in a, in a second. But these robberies were not like the Ocean's Eleven one. They were kind of like there were shootings and there was, it was like, hey, here I am. I'm taking your money. And they would leave. Can you tell us how these robberies happened and what would the robbers do? Well, the first one they uh, robbed was the uh, MGM uh, in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did that on a Sunday morning. I remember I was in church and I got called out 
and responded uh, to the MGM. What they were doing is they were surveilling the armored cars that were transporting money to and from the casinos. Mm -hmm. And so they actually entered the MGM uh, with flat jackets on, long sleeves, in the middle of summer, mm -hmm. and nobody really recognized this fact. And they um, were watching or surveilling the cage where the uh, money was being transferred. As soon as the armored cars left the cage and walked into a vestibule area uh, before they get outside, they held them up and uh, took one of their guns, uh, took the money, and uh, ran across Tropicana into a smaller hotel across the street's parking lot where mm -hmm. they had a getaway car waiting. And Why were they wearing long sleeve jackets? To cover up, they were wearing uh, flak vests, bulletproof vests, oh, okay. in case they were getting a shooting. So we knew at the time this this was an, a ser this was a serious crew. Anytime you get a crew coming in with automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons, rifles, wearing flak jackets, they're prepared for a gunfight. Mm -hmm. And so we knew this was a serious crew, and obviously there's quite a bit of video on it from the uh, hotel. So then they started, um, we didn't have any information on it at the time, then they started looking at other hotels and doing surveillances. Mm -hmm. And Vigoa was a, a very smart criminal. He had come through the Mario Boatlift in 1981 to the United States, he eventually got to Las Vegas, was selling uh, narcotics and mm -hmm. was arrested and sent to prison for a short time, got out and decided that uh, he was going to start robbing casinos. So he put a crew together and he put a crew together of three other individuals. Two of those individuals and himself were married to three sisters that worked as maids in hotels. So these were basically his brother-in-laws, oh, wow. except for one of them. So he had an insider crew. He had an insider crew for sure. And they would scope out these casinos for weeks at length and would uh, watch the armored cars as they came and go, uh, came and went basically, and uh, the times. So the second hotel they hit was the Desert Inn. And they got in a shooting with the guards at the Desert Inn. And one of the guards was shot, uh, wasn't killed, uh, survived the shooting. But I remember at that scene that there were bullets at least one bullet flew across the street, across Las Vegas Boulevard, and ended up in a room at the Stardust Hotel. Oh. And um, so it was a pretty violent uh, robbery. And then they had a couple other casinos, including the Bellagio, New York, New York. They also, for some reason, attempted a robbery at the Ross Dress for Less in Henderson, Nevada. And um, in that incident, they killed two guards, shot and killed them. And one of the suspects was actually shot and had a through and through wound on his leg um, from one of the guards. But unfortunately, both guards were killed. And Vigoa was surprised and even told us that uh, after he was arrested, subsequently arrested, told us he was surprised that those guards would fight for that money because it wasn't their money and they were only making minimum wage. Why would two people <laughs> fight for fight them? And I think he was trying to recruit them to come work for yeah, him, it right? Could, <laughs> it could be, I tell you. But they were, uh, he was pretty surprised and uh, they killed both of them. And, uh, you know, his response was, it's just about business. Mm -hmm. This is nothing personal. It's all about business. And that's how he looked at doing these robberies. And that's why he was pretty ruthless. So we 
eventually put together who he was, who the crew was, and we did a surveillance on him. And at that time, uh, I remember having uh, FBI with us and uh, all of my robbery crew uh, was with us. And we had quite a few individuals. And uh, he was getting, I believe, a brake job or some kind of mechanic work done at a shop uh, near Henderson. And uh, we had surveillance on him. So when his vehicle started to move, I took the first position on the vehicle. And it was pretty much assumption that we were going to get in a shooting with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had already killed two people. He had shot several. He was wanted for these robberies. So we just assumed that uh, that was going to happen. So I came upon the vehicle. I cut the vehicle off. And SWAT came in behind him. And they came out of the SWAT vehicle and approached uh, Vagoa's vehicle. And uh, as it turned out, they weren't close enough to Vigo's vehicle, so he was able to back up and go around. And uh, I was able to get alongside of him and determined that he had his wife and daughter in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So we got into a pursuit. He was driving a Nissan Pathfinder and um, got in a pursuit, and it was extremely high speeds uh, on the highway in Las Vegas. He ended up in Henderson. There were three of us that were able to stay with him during the entire pursuit. And it was a quite a lengthy pursuit. And at one point, uh, there was a captain that came over to radio and wanted us to disregard the pursuit. And I had said that we can't disregard the pursuit because this guy had already committed two murders, several shootings, and the next police officer that was to stop him would probably be involved in a shooting with him, and it would be unsuspected. So uh, I decided to continue the pursuit. Why did the other... Uh, cop want to stop it because he thought um, there may be because of the pursuit and the high speeds he thought there could be uh, injuries mm-hmm. and my my feeling was that uh, I had to disobey that order uh, because I felt it was important that we catch him because mm-hmm. if he was to just to have a regular traffic stop by a police officer the goal would think that he's being stopped because of the robberies and he would kill that police officer yeah so I had to make that determination and thank God uh, nobody got hurt during this pursuit, is uh, it was a very long pursuit. How and, long did it go for? Oh, I gotta say, at least it seemed like forever, but <laughs> probably 15 or 20 minutes. Okay. And some of it extremely high speeds. Yeah. We're talking over 100 miles an hour. I remember the helicopter uh, police officer telling me that this was the best pursuit he'd ever seen in his life. He had, <laughs> he had been working the helicopter, flying the helicopter, and of course we had the helicopter working with us at the time, just mm-hmm. in case something like this happened. And he said, oh, my God, that was the best. He, call, he actually called me up and said, my God, that was the best pursuit I've ever seen. <laughs> so Vigoa eventually crashed into a tree in front of a taco shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, he abandoned the vehicle, left his wife and daughter there abandoned. We got in a foot pursuit, and we were able to catch him in an apartment complex. Wow. And um, subsequently, he was uh, interviewed. Several search warrants were conducted. We were able to find several of the flak jackets, the uh, weapons and cash and coins from the hotels. And he was subsequently uh, sent to prison along with the others. Mm-hmm. And uh, during one stay while he was in jail going to court, he did try to escape from the Clark County Detention Center. He had actually escape plans which were discovered, but he had been working on one of the windows uh, at the jail, and he was going to take bed sheets and actually climb out the window. And he had been working on this window for quite some time. Wow. But now he's in prison, and um, hopefully will stay there the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. 
how long did it take until um, you caught him? Like, how long did he do all these robberies and, and then you finally caught him? Uh, this was a period probably 18 months. Wow. Yeah, and we were getting a lot of pressure too because, you know, this is Las Vegas and uh, people yeah. want, don't want to be caught up in the middle of these armed robberies. And um, so there was a lot of pressure and it took a while, but we were able to get them. And thankfully, none of our police officers or anybody else got hurt. Mm-hmm. What was going on through your mind when you were trying to catch somebody that you can't catch? <laughs> <laughs> it was difficult because I was the robbery lieutenant. Mm-hmm. and. I reported to a captain in charge of the detective bureau at the time. And of course, the government heads and the sheriff would receive pressure Mm -hmm. from people because, you know, this is a family uh, town and they didn't want, and it was a tourist town and still is, and they didn't want to see any of the bad publicity. So there was a lot of pressure. I was working a lot, but I can remember the day that we took Vagoa down, I started at seven that morning and didn't go home until the next day at five o'clock in the evening. Wow. It was straight through because once we were able to complete the surveillance, eventually capture him after the pursuit, we had to do simultaneous search warrants at several locations. And that was being conducted from the late evening all the way through the night. And uh, so I was giving press uh, conferences uh, throughout the night letting people know what was going on mm-hmm. and we were just happy it finally ended wow so by not following orders you caught the guy you used your gut instinct if i had if there was an accident or somebody got hurt i would have been in trouble mm-hmm. but because nothing happened nobody said anything yeah 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 but i think most people wanted us to stay with it it was just one particular person saying that he wanted us to disregard the pursuit. And mm-hmm. I came on the radio and said no. So it was recorded. Yeah. Did that person get in trouble? Nope. Oh. That person never got in trouble, <laughs> but uh, thank God I didn't either. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so in the book, you talk a lot more in detail about, you know, growing up in Chicago and your career and how you worked on this, uh, the Jose Vigoa case. But there is talks that this book is becoming a movie. How do you feel about that? Well, actually, I'm looking forward to it. I met John Huddy years ago when he was working for a company, and he would do, he did a show called Vegas Cops. Mm -hmm. And somebody had told him about this particular case, and he came and interviewed me, and he did a 15-minute segment on this TV show. And uh, I met him for breakfast uh, several times. We got to talking about it, and I said it was a great true story, you know, it should be heard. Mm-hmm. And he agreed and eventually um, the book was written. I can remember us going to uh, New York. His daughter, Juliet Huddy, had a TV show on and Fox at the time. And so John went and told him about the book and it was his daughter's show, so it was great. And we were at the Fox studios and I got to meet a lot of the people at Fox and I was in the audience at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, this lady I knew in Las Vegas calls me up just as the show was on. I said, hey, I just saw you on TV because they, <laughs> they put the camera over to me saying yeah. I was the lieutenant and stuff. So uh, we publicized the book and he went on several shows, including Geraldo and a few others, and publicized the book. Uh, the book did really well. We thought about the movie aspect of it and have been working on that since. Um, there were a couple companies that had it uh, at the time. Uh, but we've moved on to another one. This news company has hired a, a screenwriter, 
and the screenwriter's on his second draft. So I'm hoping it within the next year or two, maybe we'll see uh, the movie Stormy Las Vegas. Very cool. Who would you want to play you in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> You know, Unless you're going to be doing yourself. <laughs> I know, I'm not that good. I can do it in real life, but I can't do it on a stage. You know, I don't know. I just, uh, some of the particulars here have to be somebody that was probably my age at the time, maybe uh, looks similar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people that have been thrown out there. I really can't say who they are, but uh, hopefully it's a, it's a good looking guy. That's all I get to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, when I was reading the book, I mean, there's pictures of you and your fake IDs and, and things like that when you'd go undercover. And the first person I thought of was, was Tom Selleck in his, you know, yeah, early time. Yeah, early, yeah. But, uh, but that's who I thought of. I don't think they're going to go with him. No, nah, he's, he's too old. They got to go with somebody at my age at the time. I was in my 40s. Mm-hmm. So they'll probably go with somebody similar to that age or could look that age. But... Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that happening. Nice. If anybody is interested in purchasing the book, it is on Amazon. It's called Storming Las Vegas by John Huddy. And like I said, uh, John does go into detail about being a Syrian and growing up in Chicago and the case. So if anybody wants to pick up the book, it's on Amazon. John, in your entire career, what has been your favorite case that you've worked on? Not this, not the Vigoa case. You can't say that one. <laughs> I've worked on so many cases in so many areas. Uh, I've been very fortunate in my police career to work in a lot of different areas, uh, both as a patrolman, a sergeant, and lieutenant. So, you know, it's hard for me to say if there's any one particular case. There are cases that I can remember that stick out in my mind that I will probably never forget. One of them was uh, I was a young patrolman and a shooting happened on Lamb Street in Las Vegas. And I was actually working downtown in a paddy wagon. And uh, it wasn't my area, but I decided to go down there anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I re- responded to that scene, I, I saw a lot of officers out in front, and they were saying a shooting occurred inside. It was a mobile home park. So I decided to go into the mobile home park and see if I could locate the shooter. The first thing I located was the boy that was shot, he was uh, probably about 13 years old. He had a gunshot wound to his stomach and ble- bleeding profusely. I'll never forget the look on his face because he was dying and I think he knew it. And I can remember his little blue eyes and his blonde hair just looking at me, you know, like, save me, save me. Wow. And uh, he was in a big pile of blood and some people said, we need to move him. I said, no, bring the ambulance in here because the shooter hadn't been apprehended. So I left him with some other officers that followed me in. And uh, myself and another officer uh, were told where they thought the suspect was from some citizens. And I went into that mobile home, apprehended the other officer and I went into that mobile home, apprehended the suspect who turned out to be about 14 years old. And he had Mm. a bandolero, which is a band of shotgun rounds uh, around his shoulder. Uh, When he was doing the shooting, he was just shooting off rounds uh, Mm. within uh, the mobile home park and actually shot this poor boy. And uh, so I arrested him, took him to, we had to have his stomach pumped because he uh, had been taking some kind of drugs. And uh, I said to him, you know, why would you do such a thing? And he told me, I just thought it would be neat to see somebody die. Wow. So, I mean, there were, there were several instances. Uh, There was a murder robbery that occurred. Actually, it was a murder. I got called to the scene at an Albertsons because of a 
they thought it was originally mm-hmm. a robbery. And for in, those that don't know, Albertsons is like a Jewel Osco grocery store type right, of thing. Exactly, large grocery store. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got called in the middle of the night to respond to the scene. And as it turns out, the I meet the homicide lieutenant. And he said, this is a homicide, not a robbery. But we went in, and unfortunately, there were four clerks that were killed uh, by an individual. Wow. The individual was apprehended, but uh, walking in at 2 or 3 in the morning, seeing these young clerks in their blue aprons laying on the aisles as they were stacking shelves uh, covered in blood. It was a pretty horrific scene. Wow. You've seen a lot. I've seen a lot. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in Chicago and you went to Sen High School. Yes. Uh, were you always living in, in Chicago? Yep. Grew up on the uh, north side and went to Pierce as a grammar school and then later on to Sen High School. Okay. Where were your parents from? My parents were, both of them were born in Chicago. Uh, my grandparents came from uh, Ermia area. They listed it as Persia at the time. Mm-hmm. And they immigrated to the United States uh, around 1915. Okay. And we were talking a little bit before the interview, and you were telling me about your last name. The Assyrians pronounced the name Alamsha. Mm -hmm. Uh, My father, during World War II, added the W to the name, which changed it to more of an American-sounding version, Alamsha. So... We've kept the W on the name, but originally the name was pronounced Alumsha. And you were also telling me about a house that your uh, family had. Can you go a little bit into detail about that? Yes. um, I've done some research that I could pass on to my children. My grandfather bought a a, uh, farm and farmhouse in Morton Grove. it was on Harms and Davis. Now it's uh, actually called Central and Davis. But they bought a farm that uh, had several acres and eventually put a fruit stand in front of the home and on the farm. And it was a roadside stand. And people would come and buy the vegetables that my grandfather grew. That's awesome. And who did you say was famous that came and uh, grabbed a glass of water from your, <laughs> from your aunt? <laughs> my aunt told me a story. Um, that in somewhere in around 1932, John Dillinger came to the property. And John Dillinger was a famous bank robber in Chicago that was eventually killed uh, at the Biograph Theater. But the Chicago gangsters uh, used to head to the suburbs because they felt less threatened by the police at the time. So they would visit the uh, speakeasies and bars and clubs Uh, in Morton Grove, uh, particularly on Dempster. And at one point, uh, John Dillinger had visited the farm asking for water. And my aunt gave him a glass of water, and Dillinger gave my aunt $5 in return. (laughs) That's a really cool story. She didn't even realize who it was. Didn't realize at the time, (laughs) but, uh, you know, she was a young girl, and she told me this story years ago. And I did some research and found out that uh, they had actually bought the farm in 1928, had it for many, many years. Eventually the road widened and the farm stand had to be eliminated. But uh, there's quite a bit of history in Morton Grove uh, way back in the 30s and 20s. Yep, absolutely. So you retired in 2005 Mm -hmm. and you ended your career as a lieutenant. How's uh, retirement life treating you? Uh, it's good. I, Golfing a lot? 
Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I've done a lot since then. Uh, I, I became a licensed uh, private investigator mm-hmm. and licensed in both Nevada and Arizona. I was working on a lot of cases for attorneys in Las Vegas, and um, then I got hired by several big firms in New York to do investigations both in Nevada and Arizona. So I did that for 13 years. I did a little bit of undercover work for them, a lot of surveillances, mostly criminal and civil stuff. And uh, it was actually quite exciting, uh, 13 years of doing that. But uh, after 40 years of being a police officer and a private investigator, uh, June of 2018, I called it quits. I retired for good. Mm-hmm. Now I spend most of my time with my grandchildren, my children. I travel internationally probably uh, at least once a year, mm-hmm. um, trying to see as many countries in the world as possible. And i also a Freemason. I became a Freemason five years ago, uh, just over five years ago, and then became a Scottish Rite Mason. So at this time, what I do is uh, I coordinate activities uh, for feeding the homeless at St. Vincent's a couple times a month as being a Freemason. I coordinate some bell ringing uh, for the Salvation Army during Christmas. We decorate the Phoenix Children's Hospital and involved in several committees uh, with Scottish Rite. So between that, my grandchildren, my children, traveling and spending time with Marie, um, that's how I'm spending my retirement. Sounds very nice. When did you move to to Phoenix, to Arizona? Seven or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. I started coming here more and more. I still had a residence uh, in uh, Las Vegas, but I started coming here more and more and predominantly stayed here because my son is here Mm -hmm. and his wife and my grandchildren are here. Mm -hmm. Um, So I decided to stay here. I mean, you've you've seen a lot throughout the years. What's uh, a piece of advice that you would give to uh, our listeners or anybody that's interested in going into law enforcement? Well, I guess two things. First, um, I would say that uh, it's important to remember where we came from, where our parents and grandparents came from. Mm -hmm. And as you and I discussed, I created a a family history. um, Mm -hmm. So my children will understand where their grandparents came from and their great-grandparents and beyond and the struggles that they had in life and that they have the life that they have today because of their Mm great-grandparents coming to this country. Uh, And as far as law enforcement, we need good people in law enforcement. My son is in law enforcement. Uh, He's been in for almost 11 years now. It's a great career. Uh, You can do great things and we need good people in law enforcement. And these are tough times for cops, I believe. But we will persevere, and um, I think it's a great career, especially for young men and women mm-hmm. to get into. Absolutely. To end on a happier note, I know you had mentioned that you don't speak Assyrian. Your parents spoke English to you. You told me the reason why, but maybe you can tell the listeners why. Well, my grandparents and my parents spoke Assyrian when they were together. Mm-hmm. And it was either because they didn't want us to hear what they were saying. Yeah, that's usually the case. (laughs) Or, or, um, you know, they're talking about things that little kids shouldn't know about or hear about. But I think another reason is uh, my parents wanted me to speak English predominantly to be my first language. Because I think it was important when at the time when my grandparents came from Persia that they assimilate into the American community. And that was very important at the time. And so I think my parents just brought that into their lives with us. So I never got the opportunity to 
learn Assyrian. I know some of the words. I hear some of the words. I know what they are. I did take a Syrian class here in Glendale. I lasted about three or four months, but because I don't speak it, the class was hard for me to read and write it. Yeah, of course. What would you say is your favorite Assyrian food? Oh my God, everything. I love everything. <laughs> um, I actually have a book called The Assyrian Mother's Cookbook. Uh-huh. And um, so Marie, who is not Assyrian, is learning how to cook Assyrian. We have some Assyrian friends here and in Turlock, mm-hmm. and they have been teaching her how to cook Assyrian, so she's made... a Doma with the grape leaves. Very nice. She's made a Syrian stew, uh-huh. and um, she's made chata. Uh huh. And oh my God, it is the best chata I've ever had in my <laughs> life. She got it from a, a lady in Turlock who mm-hmm. was visiting us and gave her the recipe, and it is outstanding. So she's learning how to make a Syrian food, but just about anything Assyrian I love. Uh, all the different domas I love. It's a little fattening, yes. but uh, <laughs> maybe not necessarily good for my cholesterol, but it's great food. Yes, it absolutely is. What has been your biggest achievement achievement in life? Well, I, th- I would have to say my children. Mm-hmm. Having two wonderful children that have achieved in their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my biggest achievements are my children and uh, grandchildren. It's hard to get... There's many children that fall off in life, mm-hmm. and I was fortunate to have children that didn't. And it's hopefully we can say as parents that uh, we were responsible for that. Um, so if you're looking at achievements, I'd say my children are my greatest achievements. Very cool. And like you mentioned earlier, that um, parents work for the better of their children. And that's why our families migrated to, to uh, the States or to Europe to kind of bring us a, a better upbringing. So. Absolutely. And I think that's our responsibility as parents to make our children's lives better than our, ours. But that's a fine line, too. You don't want to give them too much. Mm-hmm. So it's important to walk that fine line. A lot of times we, don't, we give them too much, and then sometimes we regret it. Uh, I think in my children's case... Um, it's worked out well, and they've, they're good people. they got good hearts, and I'm very fortunate to have both of them. Well, thank you very much, John, for your time. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and review us wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear from you, whether you're just dropping in to say hi or you have someone to suggest for a future episode, go to www.assyrianpodcast.com and fill out the nomination form. Thanks again, and we'll see you all next Tuesday.